This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. On the 14th and 15th of April 2016, the Caldor Centre was proud to co-sponsor a symposium at All Souls College, Oxford, to celebrate the scholarship of Professor Guy Goodwin-Gill. The symposium brought together leading international refugee law scholars and practitioners. The following podcast is a presentation by Jeff Gilbert, titled UNHCR and Courts. It's a bit intimidating coming to Oxford and trying to do some Latin. Especially especially from someone who grew up in where I grew up. UNHCR and Courts. Amicus Curiae said Curia Amicus. I promise you... the, la- the discussion on the Latin probably lasted as long as writing the paper. <laughs> <laughs> amongst, various, amongst various colleagues around the university. I think what it's meant to say is, a friend of the course, but is the course a friend? Okay, if it doesn't say that, someone can correct me later. In fact, probably 12 different professors will come on and correct me later. Now, our first thought about a paper for today... Um, I wanted to speak on something I've just been doing for UNHCR on uh, rule of law and engagement for solutions. Because I've d- done it. It was easy. Um, <laughs> but it was just too big. Um, it didn't fit. Uh, it would have fitted much better with everything else we'd heard this morning. Though. It would have been a much better continuation. Um, but this actually is tied because... Way back about 20 years ago, I submitted an article to the International Journal of Refugee Law and its then editor-in-chief, a certain Guy Goodwin-Gill. About 18 years later, I received a word that had actually been accepted. (laughs) Subject to some revisions, and this was a paper on UNHCR and the New World Order, which in the mid-1990s, what you think we were all thinking about but it was 24,000 words long. And Guy accepted it on the basis I cut 8,000 words. Uh, and he helpfully cut 4,000 for me by simply striking out an entire section. 4,000 words just went like that. Uh, that subsection of the article was entitled UNACR in Courts. <laughs> like, like from the mists of my hard drive which has been puncturing slash mouldering for 20 odd years to present these ideas today. A domestic legal system will have its vertical structure and relatively straightforward rules on legal personality and local standard constitutionally determined. The international context is much more complicated. And, a subs- and how a subsidiary organ of the General Assembly fits into the legal framework in national and diverse international spheres is not always simple. One talks about regime interaction, but that interaction may be taking place on several different planes simultaneously, like some drawing by M.C. Escher. <laughs> um, how does a decision of the European Court of Human Rights affect the Court of Justice of the European Union and subsequent interpretation in domestic courts. And that's before we get into questions about where the International Court of Justice fits into all of this. So UNHCR and courts is a big topic in and of itself. 
1951 Convention is the principal legal regime for refugee protection, and within the 1950 statute, they both provide UNHCR with various means by which to engage with courts and states. Parallel thereto are the various human rights treaty regimes with their treaty monitoring bodies sometimes offering quasi-judicial mechanisms. I should add at this point that I will not be dealing with UNHCR's own refugee status determination procedures and a built-in appeal structure because that is clearly part of international protection, but it's very different from what's being dealt with here, where UNHCR is at, is at one remove from the process in, these, in the cases I'm talking about. Further, to limit the development of international refugee law to court-like processes would be a gross oversimplification. Alongside the courts, international refugee law progresses through practice in the field and through conferences like this, I would hope to add. The paper looks at the mandate of the casework, the role of the ICJ, domestic courts, the interface with international human rights law, the special case of the court, Europe, court of Justice of the European Union, and finishes off by asking who needs courts anyway. Okay. And all that in probably about 15 minutes. So what's the mandate for, for case work? The Convention and the Statute provide the mandate for case work. An international refugee court was not established in the 1951 Convention akin to the quasi-judicial function accorded to the Human Rights Committee under the ICCPR. However, under paragraphs 1 and 8A of the Statute and Article 35 of the Convention, UNHCR is given a supervisory role overstates treaty obligations which would permit active engagement in court proceedings where they have lockers stand their rights of audience. So, to start with the role of the ICJ, just a, <coughs> don't bother reading them, they're there later. Okay. Start with the role of the ICJ. Disputes between states' parties are to be decided before the ICJ under Article 38. To date, there have been no surprises. <coughs> Now, while UNHCR is not a party to the 1951 Convention, as Walter Kalins uh, noted in 2001 for the Global Consultations, UNHCR could ask a state party to bring a case as part of fulfilling its treaty obligations under Article 35 to cooperate. I'm not holding my breath. Okay, no way. If an Article 38 case ever were to start, UNHCR could only contribute by making its views known of its own volition or in response to an Article 34 or Article, 30, Article 66 ICJ, ICJ statute request. On the other hand, an ICJ case could arise separate from Article 38 because a state might want to utilise the interim measures regime that you find in Article 41 of the ICJ statute. Interim measures can be issued even where it is not clear the ICJ has jurisdiction, that they only apply to one party, and whether or not the alleged breach is yet to be proven. Thus, given the seriousness of mass refugee flows, which we heard about this morning, even if one is merely anticipated, a potential receiving state could seek interim measures to ensure source, the source state stops its activities that give rise to the International Wrongful Act of violating the receiving state's sovereignty. If we can't use shame, we might use the International Court of Justice. 
Although UNHCR does not have a right of audience to seek an advisory opinion, the General Assembly could seek one on its behalf. Since UNHCR has a mandate to provide international protection to refugees in the supervisory capacity of these states under Article 35 of the 1951 Convention, there's definitely locus standard. However, is it in UNHCR's interest to let the ICJ interpret states' obligations under the 1951 Convention? Do we really want Chris Greenwood and James Crawford, Cambridge men, making decisions on the 1951 Convention? Now, let's move on to domestic courts. Under consideration here are those situations where a state has decided that an asylum seeker does not qualify for refugee status and that asylum seeker is challenging that before the national courts. In some states, it may even be possible for IDPs to challenge the state's obligations towards them, and UNHCR may equally be involved in such cases. But that's beyond the scope of this paper. If you want to know about it, look at the situation that's going on in Colombia, uh, which is just a mess uh, and was part of the research that carried out from UNHCR. Primarily, UNHCR's involvement will be indirect through amicus curiae briefs, where such exists, something that Guy has contributed to over several decades. Now, Lord Steen may have been a touch unrealistic, arrogant, in asserting that there was one true meaning to the 1951 Convention, subtext, and we know what that meaning is, and the Germans do not. Nevertheless, even if the highest court in any particular land claims to have the only correct analysis if that were to contradict UNHCR's interpretation, it can be dismissed as aberrant, not fully, uh, 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 yeah, not fully aware of the decisions of other courts around the world. Just take a look at Veblis, for example. Okay. And UNHCR, having said, yeah, it's a decision of the Canadian Supreme Court, so what, moves on lives on to fight the battle another day in a different jurisdiction. To use an example that's dearer possibly to Guy's heart, would his arguments in Sebert and Bulbul um, on conscientious objection as a human right and refugee status be followed today? Would we actually see those arguments? And that would depend on another case coming along and in another jurisdiction. You can go you just keep on going. It's the wonderful thing about not having an international refugee court. You can keep on making decisions. No one is ultimately in control. That one true meaning is dynamic. And UNHCR, through court interventions via amicus curiae briefs, can forward our understanding of the convention over time. In keeping with Guy's editorial in the Silver Jubilee edition of the International Journal of Refugee Law, International refugee law is developed through continual interaction between the courts and those arguing on behalf of the asylum seeker. And where it fails, that's just one court in one jurisdiction and it can keep on looking elsewhere. So what about the interface with international human rights law? There's an indirect interaction between international human rights law and UNHCR's protection mandate in that... How human rights law develops shapes the understanding of persecution for refugee status determination in national courts. International human rights law influences the scope of international refugee law. 
Take a look at paragraph 14 of HJ and HT for an example. However, UNHCR also interacts with human rights treaty bodies as they interpret the relevant human rights convention in cases where reform is at risk or refugees are not receiving their rights even though they are within the territory and jurisdiction of the state party. The most obvious example is with respect to communications to the Committee Against Torture regarding Article 3 of the Convention Against Torture. But protection from reform is possible under all international and regional human rights treaties. UNHCR needs to utilise okay, much more okay, to complement the 1951 Convention's protection regime. Um, the problem with, let's say, the European Court of Human Rights in that regard, though, is how do you take into account the margin of appreciation? That's going to be problematic, in, particularly in the current context. Moreover, the rights to be found in Articles 2 to 30 of the 1951 Convention, for all refugee lawyers out there, yes, there is something between Article 1 and Article 33. Okay. You might not have ever read it, but it does exist. Okay. whole load of rights in there. And those rights can be indirectly enforced through human rights treaty bodies. Uh, the African Commission on Human Rights did it in uh, the movement of uh, Mauritanian refugees uh, in Senegal, against Senegal. The Inter-American Commission on Human Rights has acknowledged that reparations should include the consequences of exile per se. So just for being exiled, okay, you should be able to get reparations. So the engagement with international human rights law is an important facet of UNHCR's role in providing international protection. What about the Court of Justice of the European Union and international refugee law? There is no international refugee court. How many times do I have to say it? But human rights treaty bodies interpret their own... And sorry, and human rights treaty bodies interpret their own constitutive treaty. The CJEU, CJEU, on the other hand, when interpreting the qualification directive that is based on the 1951 Convention, is making decisions binding on 28 member states. The CJEU may be just a sub-regional court, but it does make decisions on the 1951 Convention as transposed into the qualification directive with all the various glosses. On top of that, while the qualification directive provides for complementary subsidiary protection, the fact that both outcomes are available threatens to undermine refugee status. Why see if someone fleeing armed conflict is a refugee if Article 15C gives them subsidiary protection? The client's lawyers have to take the decision that best protects the client, not the one that satisfies the academic currently investigating how far people fleeing armed conflict are protected by Article 182 of the 1951 Convention. One of the main problems with the CJEU is the right of audience. When the qualification directive is before a national court, that court can seek a preliminary ruling whenever there is a lack of clarity. Parties to the case and, there, and any state can present arguments before the CJEU. But UNHCR would not have a right of audience unless joined. Now, UK courts have said that they will give UNHCR um, 
access to the CJE by joining them, to allow it to present its views. But some EU states have no equivalent mechanism. And therein is the dilemma. What if a court that gives decisions binding in 28 of the most influential refugee law states finds against UNHCR's analysis? If UNHCR engages in a subsidiary protection case, is that implicit acceptance that these circumstances do not fall within the 1951 Convention? And issues may not have been raised in the way that UNHCR wants. Strategic litigation, when you are not in control of the case, is extremely difficult. However, the involvement in cases before the CJU is a horse that has well and truly bolted. Failure to intervene may well mean that UNHCR's voice is lost altogether. And in support of the CJU, um, in the recent JN case in February, the CJU actually approved UNHCR's detention guidelines. So the CJU <coughs> does listen. And Strasbourg, where does that fit into all this with respect to the CJU? Do you go to Strasbourg first? and then to Luxembourg, or do you go to Luxembourg? Because let's face it, Strasbourg on people fleeing armed conflict wasn't as, isn't as generous as the CJU has been in Al-Ghafash, but that was subsidiary protection anyway. It's a complicated debate to be had, and UNHCR is not in control of it. That's the problem. It has to decide whether to get involved at all. So who needs courts? Who really does need courts? There may be no international refugee court, but there is clearly a treaty body. UNHCR can issue general comments. They call them guidelines, but they're general comments. States should report to UNHCR annually under Article 35 so that UNHCR can fulfil its obligations um, to report to ECOSOC and the General Assembly. States also have to include their obligations under 1951 and 1967 in the universal periodic review process. Indeed, is the lack of an international refugee court a blessing? Because UNHCR can promulgate dynamic progressive analysis of 1951 based on its global experience, not tied to essentially atomised individualistic judicial processes. UNHCR can choose when to engage with courts and when not to. If it had to and lost, that can set back developments in the law for a decade. In these cases, though, UNHCR doesn't have to. When it does, even if it does lose, it can then promote its own guidelines okay? and sort of reinvent the wheel. In most cases, UNHCR is dealing with one court in a single jurisdiction, and when the case narrows the law, it can go ahead and promulgate guidelines again. Possibly even an XCOM conclusion, though I'm not holding my breath. Okay. Courts are but one route. It needs to be borne in mind that given its unique mandate, the decisions of the International Court of Justice in the Southwest Africa litigation, and the living and dynamic nature of refugee law, like the ICRC in relation to the laws of armed conflict, UNHCR can rightly assert that it has a significant and important overarching role in the interpretation of international refugee protection. That's one very demanding role. 
one that's been facilitated over many decades by Professor Guy Goodwin-Gill in his advocacy before the courts and in all of his writings and his advice to the organisation. Whichever way he acted, I have to say that international refugee law is much better for having Guy than it would have been if he had never come along. Can you imagine the world of international <laughs> refugee law without Professor Guy Goodwin-Gill? Thank you.